I can be an empowered person. And then as an empowered person who understands herself, I can empower others. Failing. 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 I we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Today, I have the privilege and pleasure to interview my friend, Kristen Shrimplin. She is the CEO of Women Helping Women, and she is one of, uh, I was going to say one of the few badass women I know in Cincinnati, but actually one of the special badass women that I know in Cincinnati. Wow. How about that, wow. friend? I'll take it. Right? I'll take it. You know a lot. Right. Well, you know a lot of people too. All right, so let's start out with where'd you grow up? I want to hear about your fam. You want to hear about my family growing mm -hmm. up? Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a village. Um, I grew up in a little village in uh, Northeast Ohio called Hinkley, Ohio. We okay. had one spotlight. Um, we had... Um, a tiny little library. It was like just two rooms and right across from it was the police station, which was also very small. Um, so as a kid, you're going to the cross light and you have your choice in life, right? You're either gonna go study in the library or you're gonna be a bad kid and you're going to go to jail. That is how I was raised. Um, and I decided just to try a little bit of both throughout, you know. <laughs> as a kid um but no like where i grew up was magical um you know in, in the back of our property it was like a farming community right so in the back of our property was woods uh and creeks and ravines and you could go swing on vines and you know walk through the creeks and look for crawdads it was like very idyllic um yeah, what? it was absolutely the most perfect place to be a little kid. Brothers and sisters? I have one sibling, an older brother. Um, he's three years older. Um, but growing up, I always thought I was, you know, the oldest, right? Like, I thought he had no street smarts, even though we lived in the country. You don't need street smarts, but I like to think I had them. Um, yeah, so I just always wanted to treat him as if he was my little brother. Did he behave like a little brother? No, he terrorized no. me. He did not act like a, a bigger brother either, right? So in my mind, right, I only had one sibling. So I'm thinking, if you're my older brother, your job is to teach me, to guide me, um, to, to share with me the knowledge of the world as you see it. And he like did none of that. Um, basically what he wanted to just do was constantly wrestle, put me in headlocks, chase me around, you know, the woods and push me down ravines. Like was that he was a, Was he a protector? No. <laughs> no, and then I think from, you know, the time I was a little kid, you know, I was raised, uh, I mean, I vividly remember this from like the age of four, like I was raised to be the caretaker, 
to be the nurturer. Um, and I think the way I kind of understood that was uh, to be the protector, right, of my brother. Because even though he terrorized me, he was like this little pacifist. And uh, I definitely in the neighborhood was the protect protector of like other kids and at school. So that's always kind of the way I understood the world. What did your parents do for a living? And what was, was there any like faith, religion? What was spirituality like in the house? So, yeah. So that's, that's funny, right? So when I came to Cincinnati, like 18 years ago, um, and I never thought I would come to Cincinnati. I swore I would never come to Cincinnati for lots of reasons. And here I am. And um, I have found beautiful people. I love being here. But when I first came to Cincinnati, I shared with someone that I'm not baptized. And they said, you know what? You can tell people a lot of things about yourself, <laughs> that you're gay, that you're, you know, you've got this kind of interesting past, but do not in Cincinnati tell people you're not baptized. Hold on, hold on. You can tell people you're gay. You can tell them about the interesting past, some of which I know, but do not yeah. say you're not baptized. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that was a strong line, Weird. right? I mean, I was I was really told that when I first came to Cincinnati. I'm like, okay, I, I didn't know it was a thing because when I was little, um, my mom and dad um, both grew up in church, right? They grew up in the country, farming community. So that's where you, that's where you gathered. But they decided, you know, when, when they created their partnership and had kids, they wanted us to have free will. Right. And so that we got to decide that um, for ourselves. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So my brother grew up to be um, a pacifist, vegetarian Buddha, Buddhist. And I grew up to be atheist, agnostic, and now just very, um, very much spiritual. Spiritual. Yeah, but yeah, so we did not grow up with religious doctrine, for which I'm incredibly grateful. So I love. I, I think it's really interesting your parents' choice around giving you that that free will around that. Any other things that they gave you all free will around? Yeah, I mean, my parents really they really nurtured us around um, being intellectuals. Right. And, and, and to really, you know, come to decisions that were informed based on our own exploration and research and reading and writing and literature. Um, and I'm really grateful for that, you know, so I grew up with a mom uh, who was a dynamic, amazing woman and like the head of the English department. Right. So I grew up every morning. Uh, watching her take really focused care to look professional to go teach. And I was so confused because like where I went to school, like the teachers didn't put in that much effort to the education, let alone the presentation of themselves. And my mom did. Um, and she always taught me, um, you know, she would always say, Kristen, you know, your words matter. Focus on your words. 
Um, so we would be around a dinner table and like she'd be talking about all these literary works and never knew what she was talking about. And then she would translate it into the parental message of the night on how words matter. And my dad, you know, was an unusual guy growing when I was growing up because, um, you know, he came from a small town and, and came from kind of rough and tumble, um, macho machismo in his family. And he was the first to go to college, became a counselor and a therapist, and just was really remarkable with his emotions and his resiliency and was a feminist. And I was like, what's a feminist? You know, and he taught me that. So I, listeners, I can't talk as frequently as I normally would because we've had some audio visual, we've had some audio issues. So if you notice that I'm pausing in the background, I'm really wanting to jump in and ask so many questions to Kristen, but it's because if I do, it will hurt our audio. So, okay, wait, hold on. Okay, first of all, he was a feminist and a therapist. And mm -hmm. so I did not know that. I find this fascinating, especially the work that you've gone into. So yeah. can you give can you give an overview of women helping women? And then I also want you to to answer this question. When you said uh, your words matter, I kept thinking, my God, your words matter is also like so important in the work that you all do with women helping women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So at Women Helping Women, you know, our mission is focused and it's clear, you know, we strive to prevent gender-based violence and to empower all survivors. Um, you know, and doing that, you know, I've, I've been in this industry of nonprofit, you know, you know, being of service to the community, social services, but specifically gender-based violence, right? I've been doing this for over 20 some years and you know, for a long time, never knew why I did it, right? I was completely detached from it, um, completely detached from it. But what my dad absolutely modeled for me since I was a kid, to this day, he's still alive. He, you know, he models this all the time. He's very in touch with his emotions. He's able to express himself. He believes in vulnerability. Um, at a time where it was not popular for a white heterosexual man, he spoke about equity wow. and equality. Um, and that's how he raised us. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, I think that kind of brought me through a lot of my journeys. And then my mom in teaching me the power of language comes full force, you know, into the work that we do, because essentially at Women Helping Women or any agency that's focusing on trying to be of service to survivors, you're representing the voice of the voiceless. And that Wait. is a privilege. Say that one more time. It's so good. You are representing the voice of the voiceless, you know, and that is... That's the privilege, right? That's the honor. Um, so language, what I learned from my mom, language matters. And what I learned from my dad, empathy, service, um, resiliency, 
grit, honoring people, equity matters. Um, so now as you have me thinking about this, I, I really feel like I should, you know, take more time to let my parents know, like, just how grateful, um, you know, I, I am for them because you, you, as a kid, you sit and you observe That's and right. not everything you want to continue. Um, but some of the, you know, some of the parts you do. Have you started reading the book that I gave you? Yes. Okay. Can we talk, can we riff? Yes. I sleep with it at night. I love it. Can we riff about that? So listeners, I gave um, Kristen Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart. And when you talk about language and the, the well, you jump in with me on this too, but the whole premise of the book is understanding language so that you can better, we can better connect with emotion, feeling, and then process it. So I started it, I'm only through like the foreword and then the first chapter. It's amazing to me. It's just mind boggling to me. And I'll give you one example of, of why uh, I really love it. So language, one of the one of the emotions that she talks about, God, there are so many, but one of them that she was talking about was um, anxiety versus anxious, saying you're anxious versus worried. And I have this good friend who whenever we would talk on the phone, she'd be like, I'm so anxious to hear how your day went. And when she would say the word anxious, I would get a pit in my stomach. Anxious to her meant excitement, right? Her definition of the word. To me, it meant a panic attack in about two seconds, right? So for you, so that was a big aha for me. She and I actually talked about that. And then Brene talks about the fact that the benefit of understanding language is so that I understand what a word or emotion or experience means to you. And then you understand what it means to me and it's not always the same, but we can bridge and understand where each other is. So that's been my biggest learning for me around language. What about for you? Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's so critical in so much of Brene Brown's work and what she's talking about because, you know, in the Atlas of the Heart, right? We are trying to navigate we are trying to navigate this connectivity to each other. We, we were not born to be in this world and can be completely independent and of ourselves, right? We were born into this world to be of community, to gather, um, to be able to express, to be able to connect. And I think that's really, and we I've seen it uh, in this region, I've seen it in our agency, I've seen it in policy, I've seen it in funding, I've seen it with the media, every entity of culture in these past two years with the pandemic. One of the biggest ahas is the common language is not there. We're operating in crisis, we're operating out of our amygdala. So when I say, I don't trust you, Mm-hmm. And in order to trust you, I need X, Y, Z. I have a very specific framework of trust. And what I've learned is with colleagues or with you know partners in the community or elected officials, when they're utilizing the word trust, it may look very different. Interesting. Yeah. So if we have these different um definitions of really critical worlds, uh, words, specifically during when, you know, crisis, when the stakes are so high, how do we connect as community and, and find our way? Um, and, and I think that's part of what Brene Brown, you know, talks about in Atlas of the Heart, talks about in Dare to Lead. Um, 
And what about in our families? Yeah. If we don't have a language to talk with our families first, I think, I don't know. I think it's both communities and families. So, so a lot of times before I go out into the world, my side of the street has to be clean, right? I have to look at how I'm living in my home, in my life, in my friendships, in my family. And, and I've got to take care there and I've got to focus on that. And so I think one of the most you know, remarkable things that I've had this opportunity to, to serve women helping women. And so I get this opportunity all the time to talk about leadership, talk to other leaders, and it always comes back to my grandma. It always comes back to my grandma Thompson. Everything I need to know about being of service in this community, I go back to when I was a kid on the farm watching her. And so when you talk about family, right? And, and like, that's the language, that's the atlas of my heart. Like that's the language, like that's, that's the navigation. I go back in time to this woman, she would bake pies. The stories would go that way back in the day. So she came out of the depression, right? Okay. She wore this in dress all the time. Um, at a time uh, where women did not go to college, she was the first to go to college. She wore the same dress every single day to college. She had no money. By the time she graduated college, decided to be a teacher. That was really her only option at that time. And then right. also was helping run the family farm. She had five children, four survived. She adopted two children. And then she uh, it, essentially adopted two more children when uh, they were killed, their parents were killed and put them through college. So she was, a, she was a servant leader within the home, within the community, within the countryside. But this one story is, she was like this incredible country cook and she would bake pies. And she would take those pies out to the fence and stick them on the fence because she knew out in the country, you know, like this is a really old term, right? But the yeah. hobo would come walking down the country road and she didn't want them to feel shame that they were hungry, that they were tired, that they were poor and that they would have to knock on the door to ask for food. So that was my grandma, right? And so like, I would watch and I would listen to the stories and how she showed up and it told me that's what servant leadership is. And she took it beyond, right? So yeah, you show up for family, you have commitment to family, but family is global, right? I have yeah. one brother, right? I have one brother, I have two parents, I have an amazing sister-in-law and two incredible nephews. But that is not where my family starts and stops. I love that you said that because uh, you're right. It is family is global, and I think we're all connected. Mm -hmm. I I do want to add that I I love that story about your your grandmother. And secondly, the word hobo is so fantastic because I swear to God that was what we were taught growing up in the books. Like the homeless man was a hobo. And it was always a man. And he always had like a thing over, a sack over his shoulder, right? Today, you live out her legacy. You model what she taught you. 
That's my hope. Uh, when my when my grandma Thompson passed, I was by her bedside. And I remember I felt it was so important to tell her I loved her. And she looked at me and she said, I know you do, child. And I thought it was so important at that time that she say it back to me. Oh. And she won. She won it. Because I think what she was trying to teach me is like, I know. I know the love you have for me and I need you to know the love I have for you. And she is the only person in my life and I've had a lot of people pass away. She's the only person uh, in my life who's passed away and I to this day cannot put up her picture in my home. Really? Why? I it's still so painful, but I get to think about her every day. Mm -hmm talk about her at work everybody knows you know oh yeah grandma thompson <laughs> like and i and i don't know you know if if i'm doing a good enough job where she always said kristen like we got to be worth our salt we got to be worth our salt um so i would hope you know that that you know with everything she taught me and those around her that um, I don't know, like maybe a grain of salt I'm worth. Um, uh, yes. She was an amazing woman. She was amazing. When did she pass away? How old were you? I was a teenager. Yeah. Okay. So I had a really good amount of time with her. Can we, can we shift into your, uh, badass sobriety? Can we talk about yeah, that on this? Sure. Do you For want, sure. you cool with that? You know, I think it's important uh, to thy own self be true, right? And, and part of my identity that I have to be true to is the fact that I'm sober. Um, and it's life on life's terms. It's one day at a time. And if I were not sober today, if I were not sober today, Like my grandma, in all the work she did to raise me and teach me would be for nothing. Right. Um, I would not be adding to anything in my family, in my relationships, in my community, communities. I would not be adding anything. I, I would be a liability. And um, how did you get there? Well, you know, growing up, was really confusing for me. Why? Really. Well, I grew up, like I said, in that beautiful little village, um, a farming community, working class community. Um, but I knew it was a little bit different, you know, and I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I just knew I was a little bit different. <laughs> I, I felt things really intensely, you know, people are like, yeah, you're just a redhead. Like, that's why. Um, but I thought about things a little bit differently and I, and I just didn't, I didn't know what to do with my brain, my mind, or some of my emotions or feelings, you know? So I, I think around the time I was five, I realized 
like I didn't have a word for it. Like I, I knew I was gay, but I didn't know I was gay, but I knew I was gay, but I didn't, right? There was no word for it. And so and, when you're that little. And Kristen, was anybody in your little small town gay? No, everyone, I mean, sure, but not that I knew. Okay, yeah, um, good point. You know, we were all, um, we all looked alike. Um, we were all supposed to think alike and we sure. were all supposed to act alike. And when you're a little kid and you might think or feel a little bit different, it's a, it's a heavy burden, heavy burden to carry where you're not supposed to talk to anyone. Yeah. about who you are and to carry that from about the age of five in my psyche until 18 um it had to come out somewhere but your parents as you described them earlier i mean your dad was a therapist your mom was a professor i mean they sounded pretty progressive yeah that's what i thought around all all things um but you also have to understand they came from right. a, a small world where they loved their daughter and they knew their daughter had the tendency to use her expression and they knew what that meant in our town. So when I did finally come out, um, it was not welcomed. I was told a lot of things about it. It was very painful. Did you come um, out your senior year in high school? No, I came no. out so soon as I got away, right? And I went to college. Yes. I was at this, uh, you know, I was having a good time and partying. And I was at a party and a woman came up to me and she's like, hey, Kristen, you know, I'm into women. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Me too. <laughs> that was it. Right? And then I was kind of off to the races with that. Uh, because that's what you do in college, but right. So no matter, no matter what sexuality you are. Yeah. Yes. It's freedom. It's totally. liberation. It's, it's all the things, but so like leading up to that and, and being this little kid and having these identity, you know, ideas and having very, um, specific incidences happen to me, you know, where I didn't even have to tell people I was gay, but I spoke out against things in high school. I started an underground newspaper. I, I did the things and, um, you know, for a year and a half, um, just about every day I had six guys um, terrorize me. And when you're in a country that can look a lot of ways and can be really scary. Yeah. Um, and it can have a lot of violence to it. Um, so that's, you know, where alcoholism, uh, in, in my experience, alcohol was a solution to the confusion was of trying to live a lot of different worlds and a way to cope with trauma. Was there anyone that was protecting you? Did anybody know that you were being terrorized? No, there's no, there was no protection growing up with that. And um, the one time I leaned into the belief system that you could tell an adult 
um, that was at, uh, I, I, I remember it vividly. I, I uh, was injured enough and had had enough. It was my senior year. And I marched into the principal's office and I said, here it is. Here are the guys, here it is. Um, and I remembered I didn't get home till late that night because they held me after school. Those guys had influence, they mattered. Uh, my story didn't matter. Um, and it's interesting because this is connected to my grandma. So uh, what started happening to me after I used my voice and I said, hey, this has been going on for almost a year and a half. Oh my God. I need help. I threw myself harder into my studies, right? I, I could control that. Mm -hmm. So I, it was a small school, but I, I graduated second in my class. Um, and so I was asked to give a speech at graduation. But what had happened for months leading up to that is I could no longer talk in public um, because I had equated, I think my subconscious mind had equated when you speak out. It's scary. Are, you are not heard. Oh. You do not matter. Do not speak out. And that principal wanted me to give a speech on stage and I knew my grandma was going to be in the audience and I refused to get on stage because I knew if I did those six guys were waiting and I my 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 you know my guess was they would have verbally said things that I would never want my grandma to hear mm. and so like that's why I find it fascinating that I get paid for a living now to be of service and do what I can to lift up others' voices. It's literally the most humbling privilege of my life. How do you not, how are you not pissed? And I understand time heals, but how, how did you not yeah, how are you not pissed? Angry. Well, resentment's the number one offender that led me to the bottle. That's right. And my life fell apart. And their goal, because it was well documented what their goal was, um, and what they achieved was harm. And I, I, you know, by the time I started to get sober and I, I started getting some healing to the best of, you know, my ability, um, they weren't going to continue to, to, to hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget. It was about, I forget the movie. It was about eight years ago. I had both my nephews with me. I took them, uh, to go see a movie some animated movie it was a fantastic movie they enjoyed it i spoiled them with you know all the popcorn and the pop and the candy and we had a great time and at the end we're watching the credits and uh one of those individuals name came up no way oh yeah he, he has a very 
specific name and he's he was also just a very gifted artist and it hit me like a ton of bricks i, I was with my nephews at you know these little boys and i immediately felt so sick i didn't know i didn't know how to navigate you know mm -hmm. after that um and so that's, you know, things like that, that happen, like I, it, it tells me like, it doesn't necessarily mean like there there's complete healing. I, I, but what it does tell me is I, I can take the darkest moments of my past and that's not the darkest stuff in my life, but I can take the past and I can see what light can be brought into it. And honestly, I, I had a moment when my one nephew was young that I was grateful for what happened to me um, because it gave me a language of how to go advocate for him when some things were happening to him. Yes. And I was like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> this is not gonna happen to you, child. Auntie's got this, right? And I could go into the school, I could talk to the principals, I could talk to the counselors. I'm like, we're gonna nip this in the bud now. Um, and so maybe that's why, right? Like, I don't know, like maybe I went through what I did so that when there's a little kid in my life that I love that they didn't, um, and you know, those six guys, they got to live with themselves. I will never return. Like, you know, the reunions like, oh, good Lord. Oh, no. right. No way. Um, but I will still maintain that my childhood, like they don't get that. Like my childhood was beautiful in yeah. the woods, in the creeks, like that's mine. The pies. What has been your greatest gift from cutting out alcohol, from sobriety? I'm alive. Unfortunately, the way alcohol interacts in my past, um, it you know it started off as the solution, and then it rapidly became the disease that was going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and I didn't know this at the time when I was drinking, because alcohol is such a great buffer right for myself um it killed all the things that were worthwhile right like the family trust uh people uh lost that in me uh people started just worrying about me you know you talked about anxiety before like you know they people shouldn't have to worry if i'm dependable if i'm going to show up if i'm right. okay in one piece um, I lost the jobs. I lost the, 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 I lost the bank account. I lost the housing. I lost, um, at a young age, I, I lost an incredible, um, an incredible love. Um, I lost my self-respect. Um, so when, when you start to like lose all these things, um, and you can feel numb about it, right? Because that's what alcohol does. But as it progresses, progresses, you know, it became clear to me, I'm going to lose my life. 
And, you know, I would like to say that I'm responsible for being sober. Like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I was, no, I'm not. I, you are, uh, you are responsible for being sober because you have the humility around it and you've been sober for a long time. Oh, for sure. May 23rd, 1998. Yeah. And that's the work. Yeah. I mean, I, I celebrate May 23rd, uh, every year. Like it is the greatest birthday and people have no idea why I'm so happy. (laughs) I have a, I have a, I have another chance at this and I've got a lot I want to do. And I want, I have a lot of love I want to give. I have a lot I want to give back. You know, I spend so much time being selfish, you know, and that's what I love about recovery, right? Getting rid of that selfishness and that self-centeredness and that dishonesty and replacing it with, like when I walk into a room, I'm not saying here I am. You know, now when I walk into the room, I can say like, oh my God, there you are, Sarah. I see you, I hear you. And like when I'm talking to you, Sarah, or like anyone else, like you are the only person I see. Can I jump on that? I think you do a great job of that. And I think when we talk about recovery or like a 12-step program, I think there are so many tools that anybody can use regardless of whether they've cut out alcohol or not, or drugs, whatever it might be, or food or sex. Like it's so applicable. So do you think this is, this is like a question on the fly. Do you think you could close with, what is one thing, uh, one tool that you've used to help around resiliency or forgiveness or? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's easy, you know. Um, it, it's a couple of things. One, it is literally one day at a time in life that's the only way time works and i've learned through recovery one day at a time sometimes it's 15 minutes at a time sometimes it's a minute at a time and that speaks to grit that speaks to resiliency because i can get through anything 15 minutes at a time i absolutely can um and what recovery has taught me is those 15 minutes add up. And the other piece, you know, that I've really learned that I can apply to everything in my life, which is so beautiful, is I'm powerless. Okay, talk more about that because that was my biggest learning lesson when I cut out alcohol. So talk about that. Yeah, so like growing up is. as a kid, Right? Like growing up as a kid and, you know, the navigating things and the the things that happened to me uh, as a kid and later on in college and after, power was taken from me. And so I thought the way to solve for that is if I uh, stockpile power somehow, right? And if I own power, and if I have power, then you you cannot hurt me, 
And I got so confused about that. And so it wasn't until, you know, I, I, I got into recovery, right? The bottle's down and I got to feel everything. And it is life on life's terms. And it is every single day, you know, day at a time. And, and there's no, there's no checking out of that. The greatest liberation is that I am powerless. I'm powerless over people, places, things, and situations. I'm powerless over my thoughts. My God. I mean, if someone was in my brain today, I've had a lot of thoughts. Like, I'm powerless over that. Now, I can make informed choices, and sure. I, can be an, I can be an empowered person. And then as an empowered person who understands herself, I can empower others. But there's so much uh, liberation in saying, yeah, you know, I am powerless over so much. I mean, and I think that's why a lot of folks, you know, who are in recovery, we did I think we were well equipped in, in some ways, not completely, but I, I think our psyches were well equipped for the pandemic. Mm, I would agree. God, that's so interesting. Now, I don't have children to take care of and all that jazz, but the pandemic has not been as hard for me as it has been for others. And I never thought about that. Like it literally, I mean, hasn't, I'm more worried about others than me. Cause they're up there in a tizzy. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I think what the pandemic did on, on so many ways and how tragic and all the elements it's been tragic, it stripped away human control. Yes. Now and I think to add to that is what my learning was, I wanted to control everything when I was drinking, drinking number one. Right. And then when I realized I couldn't control it, I was able to release the shame, the guilt, the disappointment in myself. And so I'm still learning on how to apply that with other things in my life, right? People, places, situations, like you said. And if I can remember that and I can stay in that, I don't get as disappointed because I don't have expectations that it's gotta be fucking insane all the time, right? And I mean like good, right? Like, yay. Mm -hmm high all the time i can i i, I i'm striving to to kind of live in in the balance section i'm gonna have my lows i'm gonna have my highs but how do i moderate back in there and by realizing that i'm powerless over those helps moderate me right absolutely it's like one less thing to fight right like there's so much thing there's so many things in the world that i i, I will absolutely show up to fight right i have to yes um but the illusion or the delusional thinking of of control and power no i'm not fighting that right i'm going to learn how to navigate you know different structures that represent power um i'm going to learn how to navigate others who try to operate from control but like i'm not gonna sit in that delusional thinking uh, that i have that or that's how i operate and there is uh, a humility with that that i think there's no way I could have come to that without 
bottoming out in lots of things and then realizing that's just how life works is there is no joy without suffering and there is no suffering without joy. Multiple realities are true at the same time. Mm. They are interdependent. And back to Brene Brown with Atlas of the Heart and navigating, right? Our language and our love and our connectivity for each other. It is that intradependence so that I can walk into a room knowing who the hell I am, but I can focus on you so that I can learn who you are. Okay, mic drop. We're, we're ending right there. That was so perfect. Ah. Hey, I love you. I love you too. You're so awesome. Thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you for taking the time to share your story and for being you. Oh my God. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for seriously the privilege to get to know you. You're beautiful. Thank you. A big thanks to our most recent patron, Dwayne B. If you like what you hear and you haven't donated, you can go to our website at failforwardpod.com. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at failforwardpod.com.